I became interested in very early on in my architectural work in um, prioritizing the idiosyncratic and challenging the systematic and fascinated with accident, chance behavior, happenstance. And I somehow connect that to a basis of the human character. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. I'm here with Tom Main, an architect whose work has been informed by and contributed to the urbanity of Los Angeles over the past five decades. Tom joins us today to discuss his interest in performance and irregularity in the shape of the city. Tom, welcome. Pleasure to be here. So you've recently returned to SIAR, an institution that you helped to co-found uh, a long time ago. Uh, you've returned to a postgraduate uh, program focusing on uh, the shape of the city. Tell us about that. Well, it seemed a, um, it was time to make a change and that um, I'd, I'd been, I initiated the project at UCLA and we've been working there for 12 years. And um, I think when we started it, we had no idea what the potential was and the type of work we'd be investigating. And it, it was much broader than anticipated and it was soup to nuts. And it was um, literally a construction project of building a float house in New Orleans where we literally built a, a prototype, constructed it and, and reconstructed it on the, on the site to more prototypical large scale urban projects, which more suit the traditional academic world. And at CIRC, um, its, its organizational structure accommodates a very hands-on, let's say, kind of approach to the work where um, we can construct full-scale prototypes and that kind of thing. One of the, well, the goals of, of, of uh, the NOW Institute was to find a new model that was closer to a research model you would find in biology or medicine or engineering, which was straddling the professional studio and the academic. And with that came a different... Um, structure, monetary, and the, the pragmatics. So you're referencing the NOW Institute that you led for a dozen years or so in the course of 25 years at the UCLA. That's right. And, and in the context of a research university, the NOW Institute you formulated as a kind of lab, as a kind of research lab that would bridge, you know, as you say, the kind of practical and applied world with the research university. And that was a remarkably productive uh, decade it, or more. It became time to, to push that model a bit, right? And then CIRC makes makes sense to do that. And with that, it just expands the kind of the uh, the options we have and the kind of work we could do. And it definitely, it's pushing us towards a hybridized model that we're now working on um, real competitions. It is a bridge program. There, literally, we set it up like a like a professional studio. I've had a critique of the academic world: lack of engagement, and yeah. it's isolation. And I'm interested in in not giving up my conceptual. The, what people think I am in terms of an architect, because I'm certainly not uh, located in the business end of the model, but I'm interested in taking those ideas and engaging them in the real world. And I find students today are just um, a little bit too isolated from that world and that they're going to about to enter a year after they leave my studio. And yet, Tom, if I have it correctly, in spite of those concerns about the academy and its remove or its distance, 
uh, you've been perennially engaged. I mean, over the course of your entire career here in Southern California, uh, helping to found, uh, co-found SciArc itself, and then a quarter of a century at UCLA, in addition to other visiting appointments in other institutions. What draws you back to the research environment? What, what can the research environment of a UCLA or a SciArc <laughs> provide for you that your own you know, firm, Morphosis, can't do in terms of the you know, experiments in the arts? That's so interesting because I... Um it's a conversation my, my wife and I have because she keeps asking me, Tom, why do you keep teaching? You, you know, it's a very demanding practice, et cetera. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm some, you might say, kind of overextended right now because I'm also doing things all over the country in various schools. Um, it seems that um, it's a personal need. And I'm a, a character that needs a certain kind of optimism that comes out of um, experiment, which is very much connected to kind of where you are at. 19 to 25 and I, I feed on that energy of young people and asking questions that are very principled what why this guy blue kind of questions and at the same time um that isn't enough for me that my practice allows me uh, the engagement which i i see is just I, I can't live without the connection and then I can't understand architecture that isn't connected to, to real social, economic problems, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but finally, I would have said architecture, urban design is literally defined, as a, at least as an art form, as a cultural form. It is literally defined by that engagement, right? I could, I could be a sculptor. I could do any kind of various art forms and be absolutely isolated. And I actually, mm, I'm part of that world too. I can feed myself at that level, but it's the the connection that I'm I'm so interested in and expanding what I see as a again a critique of the, the university and its in its isolation. I started when I was quite young. I was 26 when I started teaching, but I reminded myself that I at that time um, I wanted to be an architect that taught and not a teacher that practices, and I've kept that model as clear as I could in my whole life. In returning to SciArc and leading this postgraduate program on the design of cities, what do you imagine the challenges in Los Angeles might be that help feed that work? Will the work be, uh, in part at least, focusing on Los Angeles? Well, the urbanism, um, this is a, a 17 million population suburb, 134 cities to be more exact. If I'm working with local people, their notion of public space uh, is it a part of a shopping mall? Uh, is it a parking lot at Target? I have no idea. Um, but there's a very limited notion. In fact, I would just about say, with the model of education in the last 20 years even, and with its preoccupation with kind of highly formal kind of object stuff, it's just about disappeared as a discipline. And I'm um, interested in, let's say, expanding the the view of the university or the, in, into that. And, and then with that, of course, as you know, um, architects have given away, let's say, the urban infrastructural stuff. And it seems as though the landscape people have taken that. And that's, you tell me, that's your world. It's uh, two decades now, somewhere in there, right? And it seems odd to me that, that our profession kind of gave that up. Because I would have said, if, there's, if the most compelling problem today would be urbanistic and not object making. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've been struck by, Tom, in my conversations here in Los Angeles has been the extent to which the city is really a city in which architecture comes to the fore, an architecture in which the single family home predominates, and in which the architect, many architects produced some of their most experimental, some of their most interesting, certainly some of their early work through residential work. Mm -hmm. And at the same moment, I think one of the questions you've touched on just now is the sense of, well, 
who speaks for the design of the city. Mm-hmm. In some contexts, that's been landscape or landscape urbanism, as you mentioned. Uh, landscape architecture has been a, a relatively recent kind of flourishing in the context of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And it's not a city that I think many of my guests have associated with a strong urban design or a strong urban planning tradition. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because it's um, my adult life I've spent in Los Angeles. I'm actually promoting actually very traditional notions of connectivity and commonality, finding a connective glue that represents an urban environment. And I'm highly aware that I'm in a city that absolutely makes an argument counter to that. My beginning teachers in undergraduate were Greg Riane and, and Craig Elwood, Harwell Harris and Seriano, and they were the people that were part of the case study group, which of course came from Neutra and Schindler and you have to only remember that Neutra did the Lovell House a year before Villa Savoie. It was 1928. This is an amazing city for modern architecture, but as you're saying, at the residential level. And it's very seldom that's escaped that. And it has produced an incredibly vibrant place which authorizes um, a somewhat radical difference and you could argue is very appropriate for the kind of heterogeneity and pluralism this city represents, hundred and some different languages, and we could rent all of that. And I'm aware of that, but a single model that maybe within this model, of course, that now the conversation gets more complicated. You'd have to go back now and even define a model for a city and what a city is today. And of course, that's going to start a, a more broader meta narrative because it's again what we call Los Angeles is the metropolitan LA would be the 134 townships. So if I'm on a plane going to Europe and I'm sitting next to somebody that's from Sweden and then and they're saying, well, how was your trip? And they go, oh, the city sucks. Didn't like it at all. And I go, where'd you go? And they, they were in Arcadia. They were in, that's, did you go anyplace else? No. And I go, hmm, that's a bit of a problem because that's kind of a, one of these differentiated places in this vast, vast thing we call Los Angeles, which is of course a country. It's the size of Holland. And uh, it's twice the size of, of Austria, and it's that, that kind of argument. So again, it's going to be a really complicated conversation because are we going to talk about the various townships or the thing that we call Los Angeles? And it seems that there's maybe then a broader room that there's places that require some sort of agreement that allows us to make certain connections within our urban environment that would start with a public place. And again, here I am in a very conventional in the city of the automobile that has no interest in the public even, right? That's part of a broader democratic institution that we make in agreements of how to live within that difference. And, and if I have one single interest is to find that common tissue, that network that connects and celebrates difference. And it's what leads me to interest in looking at new architectural models, organizational and spatial models that are derived from the radicality of the difference of forces and cultures and the nature that make them and aren't attempting to find either neutral frameworks. Hilbertheimer, I mean, again, we have clear kind of places to go on our profession in terms of history in the 20th century, but are trying to somehow neutralize specificity to find a commonality. And I'm interested in trying to maximize uh, uniqueness and the idiosyncratic and specificity to find a new notion of, of connectivity. Make sense? That's interesting. I mean, you, you're describing, a, on the one hand, your connection to a broader tradition of experimentation in the arts in across media, 
but an interest that I see in your research and in, and in your work of kind of loading up or charging the extremity of those conditions to arrive at something like a new term, a third term, let's say. So neither the totalizing kind of modern existence minimum, we all have the same condition. We all, we all have the f- same Ford or the same lot or the same, you know, Levittown house. Uh, but at the same moment, not the good taste of bourgeois, you know, city beautiful, nor any kind of other kind of taste layered over, but in fact, accelerating the conditions for an urban project to reveal some new potential. I think you remain committed to this idea of the Enlightenment as an incomplete project in that sense, the idea that we can produce new cultural conditions that can be emancipatory, that can reveal both connection, but also open up space for new forms of human experience. Yes, and it's um, quite separate from the physiognomic. I think that's one of the huge problems we have, that people are focused on the look of something, and I'm interested in the structure, the organizational kind of idea, and its resolve in physical terms, I can't imagine not connected to the the heterogeneity of the cultures that make it, and that that's a hopeless enterprise to make things look alike. As an architect, I'm interested in spatializing and organizing at a larger scale, and it seems like it offers incredible opportunities, starting with your residential model, that to be able to um, to operate at a very high level spatially, et cetera, to be able to take that and operate at the urban level, it's that, it's that simple that I'm interested in that kind of ability. Meaning that um, it seems like uh, planning and urban design is also very loaded up with data people, information people, social people, and I'm still the architect. I'm interested in the physical organizational. I'm concretizing those ideas. Mm-hmm. And I'm also looking at experimenting what, as you work with it within physical parameters, how does that challenge and kind of reorient the notion of how you structure a city, right? And um, and it starts with a line or a grid or an axis or something. There seems to be so few tools we have Mm. when it comes to actually translating the complexity of social, cultural, political, environmental data, et cetera. That, that resonates with my experience. I mean, certainly in Los Angeles, I think in many American cities, we've never had better data. We've never had more maps. We've never mm. had more information. It's not clear in our conversations uh, with architects and urbanists that um, more information necessarily produced better you know, decision-making. We, we've been rereading recently uh, Herbert Simon. Uh, Simon was a political scientist and economist who wrote a book called The Sciences of the Artificial in the 60s. And his argument was that a surplus of information doesn't produce better decision making. (laughs) A surplus of information drains us of our primary faculty, which is attention. (laughs) And so as you you say, I think I've seen it in your work, both in research in the academy, but also uh, through morphosis, a commitment to the idea of not not simple empirical observation information, but finding the threads, finding those ingredients. I mean, you do reference this tradition in Los Angeles. This has come up in our conversations with many of our guests here, in which the the legibility of the work of the architect stands in, whether it's the scale of the house or at the scale of the block or the or the the larger project. The legibility of the architectural form is is quite uh, palpable in this city and stands uh-huh. in for a kind of civic aspiration for many people. And I know from what you've just said, but also in your work, your interest in deep structure and, and finding kind of structural conditions that you might unlock. Of course, things in the end arrive at form. They look like something. Uh-huh. There's a legibility to that. Two things, a couple of things you said there I want to go back to. The, no, this is a city that if you look at an icon, it'll actually be a building and it would not... This, it would be an object, and it would never be a connective space or a, 
a plaza or whatever. But you, the, the thing about information, I completely agree, is you, is you increase information. But what I think was take place, and definitely it's been a trajectory which you've been part of over several reviews at the Nail Institute, is that the whole um, role of data and its, um, quote, objectivity and its supposed neutrality has been something we've been working with now for for years. And it's it's moving more and more towards the um, the specificity of particular information that's connected to a particular idea. And it's becoming more evident that, in fact, we just, this last uh, the two years, in both of my studios at Syrac and at Penn, we've reversed the kind of sequencing that we were starting with data collection, et cetera. We're starting with ideas and now rethinking what information we need to support a series of ideas, which there are, are somewhat hunches and they operate on subjective kind of notions. And now we're going to kind of test them, but we're going to approach information, data of all types from a very particular perspective. And it's not neutral. It is going to be supporting or challenging a particular premise. It's a, mm -hmm. a process we're still really in, embedded in. And it's, um, it completely changes the notion of how you're approaching problems. And it definitely, you get very different answers. So in addition to making that research perhaps more efficient, more focused in certain ways, does it also change the nature of the urban projection, the outcome of that mm -hmm. work? Yeah, of course. The critique will start on the premise of the project and not on the information. Right? It starts on some premise, and it's going to be humanistic. It's going to have something to do with a, uh, a direction that has a beginning premise that you can make an argument for, that the information is useful or supports, or again, if it changes that, it helps you in the reiterative process of developing the idea and making the kind of changes necessary in terms of that feedback loop. I want to draw you out, Tom, on at least one element, one thread that I've seen evident in your research, your teaching, but also in your practice in the work of Morphosis over many, many years, which is your interest in uh, climate, carbon, hmm. energy broadly, and the extent to which one might begin to organize urban research, urban propositions, project making from a, a fairly radical point of view of, of the decarbonization of our energy systems or the decarbonization of our economy. I mean, among many things we could say about your work, your research, and your practice with Morphosis has been you've been at the forefront of fairly radical, very aggressive, uh, zero carbon, uh, net zero energy proposals that are many of which are now built at the scale of buildings and blocks. Mm. How is it that you're able to reconcile that interest in the environmental externality, conditions of climate and societal need? with what you've already articulated in this conversation, which is an interest in architecture and, and in a way the kind of maintenance of the architectural autonomy, you know, the architectural it's project. It's interesting because I've been asked that before. It's just a given. <laughs> I don't have any really, you, would, you wouldn't ask that about seismic. And you could look at the work and you, you think it's radical or whatever, but it wouldn't be, did that somehow affect the nature of how you ever see this as promoting a, 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 some sort of an experimental architecture. And it's just an additional demand uh, a set of performances that I take for granted as a more or less responsibility as, as an architect operating within a global climate condition that we all understand is something. If anything, it just it's interesting in that it adds potential to looking at various ways of solving that problem that are not quite so literal. And then in some cases, um, you realize that it's not 
the science part of the project. It's not the performance in in scientific terms and in, in engineering terms. It's um, part of an educational process. So the the Shanghai project, which is a we developed a kind of a hybridized building landscape, and it's it's finding a, a new typology slash morphology. I'm interested in, in the role as a, um, a communication device of the problem, and it's about education, and it's purposely didactic. I could have done the same thing, solving it technologically, but that wasn't the part that was interesting. The interesting was actually communicating it or finding overlaps, connecting dots between the solving of the problem within, within clear, pragmatic terms and its relationship to its various performances in terms of its use in human activity, right? But I think that one is more and more embedded in our world today. This conversation would have been very different 10 years ago, 20 it's years ago. It's certainly embedded in your work and in your practice. Have you found, Tom, that all of your projects, all of your clients, all of the institutions that you work with, are they all equally receptive or, is, or does it vary oh, no. location? Oh, you're, you're saying that. I, was, um, I drive this car that, that Ian Musk developed that it seemed like he single-handedly reinvented the complete auto industry, and nobody can now not deal with this thing he invented. And it's this high-performance, comfortable thing that solves all the human needs, et cetera, that um, doesn't use carbon fuel. And you also save time by going to gas stations and all kinds of other stuff, right? And one of the answers was, I can't figure it out. Everybody should have the car. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's completely logical. Uh, okay, it's a little, the little one's now a little less expensive, but... How do you answer those questions? Because most people, no, they don't. In, fa in fact, we've had clients that demanded energy-neutral buildings. Today, it's um, more or less standard fare, I think, with clients that I just said the, the huge majority of them are, are with the program in terms of the energy requirement. When it comes to the final ice of the building, hmm. does it hang around when it comes to the, the capital investment, uh, um, yes and no. It and depends, it's yeah. strange enough, you tell me, this is your area, not mine. I'm startled as an architect how um, little progress we've made with the public. It's all talk. This, everyone seems to agree. The young generation, maybe more so. I'm not sure, how, we'll see how that plans out, but this is an accepted condition today. And yet it's amazing how little effect it's had in real terms. In when this people context, have to, they build their own house, they buy a car, et cetera, et cetera. And it's startling to me because it seems so completely obvious. And the costs are somewhat mild. And in fact, in today, in our world, if we're going to negotiate this in architecture, we're going to negotiate amortization. Will it pay for itself in seven years or 12 years? And that'll be the conversation, right? In terms of an additional investment. And, and I don't know, I'm the wrong person to ask. I shrug my shoulders. Like, it doesn't seem to be a huge argument here. This is something that would be hugely kind of beneficial. And you might consider it even a kind of a moral obligation, but we're not quite there in, in reality. In thinking about the American city broadly, uh, and think about Los Angeles in particular, among a short list of very urgent uh, societal challenges, of course, is anthropogenic climate change, decarbonization of the economy, precisely the kinds of issues that you, both in your research and practice, have been focused on for many, many years. And you've clearly seen with a number of institutions, a number of different projects, great success in realizing fragments of the built world that are maybe even energy positive, maybe even carbon neutral. Do you find an appetite for that sort of thing in Southern California broadly? But by the way, if I could reconnect the dots, it goes back to an early conversation that's my interest in the, uh, the Now Institute. 
And then I'm interested in young people connecting the dots between the broader, let's say, academic conversation about let's stay with, with carbon neutral and the reality of as an architect connected to the real world, the, the relationship of the public or, the, or the, the broader notion of their response to that. And I think what it's going to do in terms of this education is it starts prioritizing um, methods of approaching the problem, which are more, um, they move away from the purely conceptual and they become more strategic. And I would have said today's young students, the students of the, today's generation need to become much more strategic. And it's a very different education that I got is pure design that's come out. You live in your separate world and it's up to you as you develop 10 years later, 20 years later, mm-hmm. right? As a practitioner to decide what that connectivity is, right? As you really, as you, you face the reality of the public yeah. vis-a-vis the... You mentioned strategy. Uh, I know that uh, while you were leading the NOW Institute at UCLA, you were engaged in very high-level conversations across the university about the strategic response to climate change and threats of, uh, threats of a variety of kind, drought among them, fire. Right. Um, you did this, uh, what I thought was a very interesting study about the densification of Wilshire Boulevard mm. that I want to ask you about. Many of our guests in our conversations here have referred to that country the size of uh, the Netherlands, you mentioned the 173 municipalities, having reached a certain kind of limit of some kind. And I'm interested to know if you, if you follow that argument that, in fact, people are more and more interested now to look at density within the fabric of the city itself. And an example of Wilshire Boulevard having the, the amenity, a kind of urbanity, having a cultural history and having the kind of carrying capacity to use that mm-hmm. term. When we, we started that project, I've been fascinated, and I, we've discussed it before, with certain large-scale problems that no one seems to be addressing or even interested in. And some of them, they start off very, very simply. You look at Los Angeles, and again, I've been here since I was 10 years old, and um, I've watched the freeway system develop in that period of time. And I now, I just moved from down the block because it took me an hour to get downtown. I moved halfway there by living in my office because I'm, I need the accessibility of the, of the city. And it still takes me an hour after two o'clock if I want to go to a Cyrus lecture. It doesn't work, right? And then that leads me to think, will the system finally just break? So at 17 million, does it break at 20 or at 18.5? And it seems just like a really basic kind of issue that finally would go, there is a limit to any system, right? And my drive here today, the traffic this way is okay at this time of day. It was already completely stopped from the beach all the way. And so I'm going, there it is again. That's an hour, an hour and 15 minutes to go seven minutes on a Sunday morning because it's 15 miles. So we're here here in Venice. We We should say we're here in Venice. Your studio had been, you used to live very close to here. And in this move, this is a move that's not an enormous distance geographically, but it speaks to the capacity, the caring capacity of the system. It, of the system. Exactly. But, but anyway, so we started the study and we're, we were looking at, uh, we, were, we were being asked that, um, to kind of look at Los Angeles and that the projection, uh, which is probably low, is 1.5 million people, additional people in Los Angeles now, in the county, not the, the metropolitan, in 2050. And... We started by asking that question, um, would that be the breaking point of the the, uh, traffic infrastructure? And then we did a scenario of distributing that over this given area. And we could say that the most obvious one would be somewhat an equal distribution 
et cetera, connecting to densities, et cetera, et cetera. And this would, um, because of the horizontality of the city, do nothing but the first system to be breaking would be the, the transportation system. And then with that, we're connecting just pieces of information. They just add a lane on 405 and the traffic's worse. And of course, it's fa fascinating. The more lanes you add, you actually go the reverse. Induced you, demand. You put more cars, right. And, and that was a couple billion dollars, right? And we're going, hmm, it seems like a completely obvious kind of a problem. And so we started looking at this and said, well, in one of the scenarios, if we put, if we use the 15 miles, 15.5 miles from Santa Monica, downtown LA on Wilshire Boulevard, could we put all the people there? And we, we did a really quick study and we said that within uh, a five block uh, width, that would get everybody walk to the metro. It would look like Barcelona. So before we designed it, we decided it's, it's doable. And we said, well, if we map Barcelona, so you'd look at a, a five, seven-story structure, it could be done. And then after that, we mapped Sixth Avenue, and we said, okay, that's one look, and this is another one, and the density shifts, and you're going to walk a little less, but you have a different kind of uh, a housing stock. And then we proceeded to do that project. And um, what that meant is that we kept, it was 1% of the total area. So we had 99% of the NIMBY solved. It'll be essentially what it is today in 1950, and it slightly improved because the vehicle and certain technologies will slightly improve. So maybe instead of the hour, it's gonna take you 45 minutes to get downtown from here or something. And we produced that, it was actually an incredibly interesting idea. And of course, what it did also, it crossed various townships that make up this thing we call LA. So it's Santa Monica and it's Beverly Hills and it happens across the Century City and then Koreatown and then downtown. And we made several different models that prove this could be done. Totally kind of fascinating. But then the next question is, um, who do you present this to? <laughs> this we have a very a interesting mayor, and he's a, he's a really bright man, et cetera. But there's nobody interested in that problem here. There's literally, there's no planning department, there's urban design department. And then you scratch your head going, I go back to my question, is anybody just interested in, will it break? And it seems like we're talking, we're talking about the seventh largest economy of the world. Nobody is actually interested in that question, and it will break. It's one right? of the questions it, that's emerged in these conversations with many of our guests who ask, you know, if you're thinking at the urban scale in Los Angeles, who's your patron? Who's your client? Who's yeah. your who, who's your audience? Where is the, the venue? That's what I'm saying. It doesn't yeah. exist. But that's also, um, if you ask some of your other guests, I'd be curious the kind of answers you got. I would have said that a majority of the people here that are interested in urbanism are at a precinct level. And it's still going to be street trees and it's going to be a micro urban environment and it's, it's bus stop benches, and there's a whole group of people that are interested in that. Maybe micro neighborhood at some level. And again, I'm just particularly interested in the other, I'm interested in the big scale problem. It's just my own, my own interest, because there's any number of people that can do that. And it's also, for me, there's less kind of opportunities there. I see the opportunities that don't exist today are at the macro level, and they, I'm convinced, I won't make it long enough in my lifespan, but I'm convinced in the 21st century that the most compelling problems will be these very, very fascinating macro problems. And they're not just macro. And again, it goes back to the educational environment. They're highly intricate. And it goes back to the Latour conversation. They have to do with an incredibly complex hybrid networks that it's never the thing itself. It's always the thing you're discussing, the subject, the topic is such in relationship to its multiple connections of, of other networks. This connects, I think, very clearly to your previous formulation that you're less interested in the appearance of things and the kind of the, the scenographic, more interested in the, what you might describe as the performative. How do these systems operate? How are they imbricated? 
you've also mentioned now a couple of times, and I know from your work, you have an interest in the non-obvious, uh, the uh, non-linear, secondary, like, well, if uh, you pull on this, something else happens that doesn't seem causal. You've mentioned it in, in this conversation, I know from your previous work, uh, you have an interest in, in postponing appearances, you know, less concerned with the appearance of things in the urban context, and more concerned with how things perform whether that be transportation systems or accommodating 1.5 million new people in the county over a number of years or the, the kind of carbon economy and the performance of net zero energy. In that regard, I, I'm interested in uh, the, the limits of performativity in that regard. I mean, uh, I know in, in other contexts and in this conversation, Tom, you've mentioned these performative demands of architecture as just the obligation of the architect. I'm known for not answering questions directly, but he said something, and it first reminded me that um, the public is preoccupied with the look of the thing. So the conversation we're having with performance, whether it be energy or otherwise, the thing I find so interesting is that relaxedness about the look and my interest in performance is absolutely correct. I have a reverse notion of the public. I'm known as an architect that produces things that look like something, and, and I'm even labeled, or I have been, as a formalist and as you know, in our profession, there's this divide between the formalists and the dogmatic, especially the energy guys, right? And I lived through that since my own education. And I'm scratching my head going that this is um, a condition that's produced by the critics or by certain members of the public that present your work. And that um, with, say, Cooper Union, they always want to discuss the nature of the idiosyncratic look, but they don't want to talk the nature of the public that I have half the people moving in an 11-story building, walking, and it's part of the public space in a social sense, and the school is about the connectivity of engineering and, and art and architecture, and that it's the most efficient laboratory building built at that time in the country, and it was a great effort by the client of making a Leeds Platinum and all that kind of thing. They never, they don't ask those questions, and we already have a condition in this country, which maybe this something like these conversations help, that they tend to isolate they, um, it becomes a very binary conversation. You're either a designer and a formalist or you're a performance guy. And that still is embedded, as you know, in our educational system. You agree? But that's that's precisely what I want to get at, Tom, is that sense of whether it's the, the Cooper Union building or, or it's um, Bloomberg uh, Center, um, Cornell Tech campus in New York, or, or any number of projects at Morphosis. And a sense that um, by pushing the performative having very, very clear, very bottom line often, kind of uh, quite ambitious goals for the delivery of certain kinds of performativity. I find in your work, you, you arrive at these kind of unexpected or non-obvious conclusions. I mean, as you say, we, you know, we live in a, a, an economy of the image in which media plays a role, of course, the way in which, if we talk about architecture at all anymore, the way that it appears is through the rendering or through the community meeting. And, and I think in that sense, the what you're alluding to is the way that the image of urban change or the image of urban futures kind of plays in public imaginary. Hmm. And it's very difficult in that kind of a, either a mediated context or the context of a public meeting to really get to questions of, well, what are the goals that are performative. I think in part, would it be fair to suggest this is why you've had so much traction uh, producing effective work with institutions? I mean, mm. I, I think of your, your work with, we've mentioned mm. a couple of universities mm. uh, where there are clients, there are meetings, and there, and there are decisions to be made about, mm. well, what are these performative measures? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in a broader political economy, if we think about the future of the American city, it's not always clear who, we, who we're speaking with. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's interesting because the, uh, right now, as you know, the, uh, one of the conversations happening in the university 
is the the challenging of the um, isolated model, the um, the ivory tower, and it, Cornell was a really interesting example of that because we, we we worked on their campus and then we worked on their their new campus on, on Roosevelt Island, and they were um, definitely looking at again parallel to what I'm trying to do at the now institute. They're definitely looking at the, the engagement and the con- the connectivity as being now absolutely essential in the educational process, right? And so they're asking by their nature, broader questions that discuss these performances within social, cultural, political terms, which is the necessary, right, where it has to go. But that's going to lead us several places, too, that um, in urban work, it's gotten so complex that it's not a model that's going to go to the public. Like, it'd be interesting in this conversation, as it gets translated to, what we can talk about that's actually translatable to the kind of everyday person. That's right. And that I want to be, if you have what could be considered today fairly simple medical procedures, they're actually insanely complicated that have come out of decades of research and it's moving at the speed of light. And again, it's kind of interesting how that we don't seem to have a lot of, everybody's concerned with the cost of medicine and all the problematic that's in the news every other day. But there's very little conversation on what one of the reasons that took place was the radical shift in the technology that we have. I have two knees right now, right? Steel knees. Today, that's everybody has steel knee. If you're, if you're over 50, I've never, never heard of. I would have been doing whatever. I would be hobbling around and doing whatever. And but but it's ramped up enormously, which has to do with the day-to-day notion of how we deal with medicine. But our expectations have, have moved. I just said there's a parallel argument within our urban environment that that you would understand if you lived in Manhattan or you lived in Boston, you could pick certain cities that clearly, and I think it comes now more intuitively that you understand just inherently the nature of certain complexity that comes with a certain um, kind of density, density both in physical terms and in social cultural terms that is understood. But if you're not in that situation in LA, if, you, if you're within this enormous suburban kind of situation, that alone is going to be an incredibly complicated subject, right? To somehow make people aware of this incredibly interconnected set of disciplines that makes up what we call urbanism. In fact, we had that conversation with the, uh, the LA 1% solution. We separate, and this goes back also to education, to strategy. The, the main part of the, the study is the study itself, and it represents a very complex set of, of conditions. The conversation of that to the public has to be stripped down and the 1% worked. Because we can now talk about it and completely strip it down and put it within a public forum. And this is now strategic, right? And then with that comes the complexity, right, that no one's going to be interested in. Yeah. As we now kind of prove the possibility of that of that solution, I think the, I want to ask you about these uh, these examples you've mentioned. You know, healthcare, the research university, the relative, um, the communicability, the kind of transmissibility of advanced knowledge, let's call it, in certain fields to broad publics. Uh, this conversation I had with Jim Corner years ago, where Jim shared with me his observation that if you were to parachute into a research university and land in physics. Uh, public health, any number of other fields, at a high level, you wouldn't necessarily, parachuting in as a civilian, presuppose that should, you should be able to follow along. It, it wouldn't necessarily have presumed that I should understand day one. You know, I should have to take some 101 courses. And, and so I want to ask you about that. I you mean, wouldn't even have the language. To, 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 <laughs> if, if, you, you know, if you think about the research university in this regard, 
Is it a fair observation that in our conversation of the city today, we, we somehow have internalized the expectation that we're always talking to everyone? Mm. And does that in any way limit our capacity for developing, you know, these tools and techniques? And Worse than that, it, understand- ends, it, it ends that we have to have um, our own language that deals with the complexities. And it's going to require um, whole inventions of language. And within any discipline, there has to be a... Um, a very kind of specific language. It's funny, we're working on a project now that's made up of a series of communities that makes up a city that's a, on a line. We don't have the language to describe it. We don't, we don't even know what to call these things. And um, to us, a good sign that we're heading someplace that, that we, we don't have the language even to describe it. But um, no, it's absolutely necessary. In fact, that's rampant in architecture. I want to return to this question of the specific particular, the, the, you've mentioned the term idiosyncratic quality uh, of some of your work. I associate that, correct me if I'm wrong, with an interest in the performative and a kind of experimental open-mindedness about outcome. And often this produces, in the context of urban projects, a kind of set of nonlinear outcomes. I mean, as you've said already in this conversation, uh, urban environments are so highly imbricated, they connect everything in a way. That if one begins to pull or push on one particular aspect of a problem, there can often be these nonlinear secondary or tertiary effects. And I think oh. often, you know, design uh, for all the limits of design, design is often invoked as a way of understanding the world where we're quite comfortable dealing with that level of complexity, uh-huh. engaging in, you know, as you said, speculative inquiry before you have all the data, right? You're working with urban systems that are far more complex. And in that regard, I'm, I'm wondering if there, are, if there are limits to that level of urban speculation, if there are, you know, kind of dangers associated with speculation at the, at the scale of the urban. I became interested in very early on in my architectural work in um, prioritizing the idiosyncratic and challenging the systematic and fascinated with accident, chance behavior, happenstance, and I somehow connect that to a basis of the human character that I'm interested in. Is that, that's I'm your, your in, human character. Yes. And um, that I'm, I could do a study of faces and I'm not interested in some sort of a type that represents beauty. And I have huge problems with even the whole notion of beauty. And I'm much more interested in compellingness and other words that within our global world is so culturally diverse, that it seems that this is not a territory you want to bother with. I've used that as a as the material I'm working with. And I'm in some ways, like I have a series of drawings now that are willfulness and chance, dealing with willfulness and chance. And I'm, I'm interested in, in somehow organizing or using that material as my my stuff that I work with. So if I look at New York, the grid is a given, I'm going to start at Gansvort. I'm going to start at some accidental place that I find the most interesting as a source of information, and I'm going to use that now as a model. And then that model, if we're in urban terms, is strangely enough, it's going to relate cities over time. And I'm fascinated with the, the urban work we're doing right now, that we have very short periods of time of developing huge, huge projects that if we looked at cities we admire, took place over centuries. And I'm interested in whether we can condense some of those qualities. And with me, it starts with um, the complexity of multiple forces. And with that, the organizing of chance, happenstance, et cetera, 
that develops something that's um, filled with what could be seen as mistakes or errors, or again, happenstantial, or it, again, the idiosyncratic. And it's my current pre it's preoccupation I've had. But again, you, as architects and urban planners, we have to, we, we concretize our ideas. So we finally produce something that you now critique. It's not left as a, as a, as a, as a broad conceptual kind of framework. Right? And unless it passes And, and now you look at that and you start asking what it does or what, it, I'm going to walk right by studio tomorrow. We're going to start that conversation. And it, it, this particular organizational thing, where does it take you? Right. And, but it's going to start with our conversation will start with um, human values. How do, how do we kind of reconfigure a contemporary society, which is going to be clearly urbanized? That's not going to change. And what are the possibilities for new models? And again, it seems like there's so few people at this point of time dealing with that, that it makes it itself a compelling problem. You agree, right? I mean, it seems kind of interesting. And, and again, um, not at the, the social level, at a level that somehow has some resolve in a physical sense. Right? It's funny, I started, uh, my, my first beginning in planning was with Grun Associates. I was just out of school, and I had a very kind of abstract education in the end of the 60s that was, it was the, the, the end of modernism, and they were challenging this, and it was the, Chris Alexander, and with, with me it was Ralph Knowles, et cetera, and Ian McCargs. We were led into kind of systems thinking, and it was this very new stuff, touchy-feely things. When I came out, it was much, I was much more prepared as a, as a thinker anyway, to go into planning versus architecture. And I started with, with Victor Gruen. And at the time, it was a kind of a think tank in LA. And a lot of people showed up there. And I was there for two years doing um, planning. And then when I saw the results, I was horrified. And I realized the document, which I agreed with, the result of that had nothing to do with in my brain. Interesting. The physical quality of the place. And I realized I was much more qualitative than a quantitative person, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I, it got me back into architecture. And I realized that, it, and, then, and then circle around for decades now as I've done this. And I realized that looking back, that in fact, I'm interested in the connection of those two. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to be very insistent on um, a feedback loop of where it's taking me in terms of the reality of where where it's taking me in terms of the city making, right? It's just not an idea. No matter how elegant that idea is, it has to be tested. And then, and then there's that feedback loop that's so important. You now readjust your the, the conceptual position and the methodological, the, the method to get you there. And it's that feedback loop that's so important. Right? So after recoiling from seeing that work uh, with Gruen and its realization, what, what, what did you do after that? I started teaching <laughs> and asking questions about architecture. Mm -hmm. And oh, that's kind of difficult. Yeah. I'm not a good employee. <laughs> I started my firm out of default. I literally couldn't work with anybody in a, in a successful way. So I had no choice but to do it on my own. It seems to have worked out. <laughs> you mentioned Ralph Knowles in USC. I mean, I think, of course, everyone you know, who doesn't know should know. You, you did your architectural training at, um, at the University of Southern California. You mentioned that you moved here when you were 10. So you spent quite a lot of time in this part of the world. Uh, among the things that I'm interested in is, you know, your experience with Ralph Knowles. So Ralph Knowles, of course, was a uh, had been a student of uh, Kevin Lynch at MIT. And in Knowles' work, what I see is this, again, this loading up the, of the performative. If you, if you take the performative demands of some set of desirable ethical or societal outcomes, 
But if you charge them sufficiently, in certain instances, I see this in your work, the outcome can kind of transcend the obvious. Mm -hmm. And I find this often in your work and in our conversations about mm -hmm. your work at, at, the, at the kind of architectural and urban scale, the sense that if you, if you simply pursue the demand of decarbonizing our economy or engaging in any number of other forms of performative outcome, if one pursues that with a kind of rigor, with a kind of empirical and ethical rigor, one can often, I see this in your work, often arrive at something that's not obvious at all. But see, now I'm going to say I am a formalist because the environmental rigor I took for granted. It just, it made total sense. There was no reason I had to pursue that. I just took it for granted. Where it took us, a complete different conversation because he was, um, oh, we talked about this before. He's also my model as a, as a teacher. How so? And that... Um, it took me until I was probably 35 to get what I did. And at 45, it was getting much clearer. And 60, I'm now understanding that I'm working with a huge amount of uh, what he gave me to work with. And I'm interested in his uh, model of education and the way he thought and investigated. And then with that, I'm going, hmm, if I've got a teacher that taught me when I'm in my young 20s, and I'm working at it 60, I've got an unusual guy. <laughs> right. Right? Right. And uh, I could be so lucky to be the same person and have um, those long-term kind of that, that kind of depth, right, that you can still work on because mm -hmm. he's an immensely unusual person. But he started us um, on an investigation where we had, and again, that's completely stayed with me my whole life. I'm interested in operational strategies and not a prioriness. And we've talked about that and it separates me. It will separate architects. Well, most of them are maybe a priori, meaning you think, mm. you draw, you preconceive, and you draw something. Mm. And what he started we was uh, you work through you, you a process, and you work on the process which develops something, and you don't know what it is. And to this day, I'm only interested in working something that I don't know what the solution is. If I know what it is, I'm already bored with it. I want to move something else, right? There's no reason. It's it's done, right? That methodology took us someplace, and you've seen the work, and it was just absolutely amazing things that just left us. And they weren't completed and he couldn't complete them. In fact, that's a plus, not a minus. Maybe that's it's not, not his role. That's, that's not right. a critique at all. That's right. Um, and he left them in immensely kind of abstract terms, but they were just beyond compelling. I mean, it you, allowed you to realize that you're going to move into an architecture which is so outside of all the terms you understand within history, typo typological, et cetera, that it, it opens up a complete new vision of the that, possibilities. That openness, that, uh, that abstraction, as you say, it's not a detriment, it's rather quite a fertile outcome, in fact. Uh, once the performative demands are, you know, those parameters in the terms we would use today are so clearly inscribed in the work, there's something uh, liberating in that? I mean, And you know what happened? I'm, we didn't talk about it a lot, but it was implicitly urban. He was focusing more on the direct natural forces that produce these organizations, but they were all at an urban scale. And again, you have to remember, he's the next wave at USC following the case study people. And so my fifth year, they couldn't quite deal with him. We had all the case study guys. And I'm having Pierre Koenig, and I'm having Elwood. We just went after these guys. They were just, we were not interested in doing little houses and dealing with kind of style Right, and he had already started us going. It was really fascinating. No, he's. It's interesting. He's having a, a kind of a rebirth because it's. Um, he was so far ahead of his time. Could not be more. Topical. He's still far ahead. Of could his not time. be I have to more. Say, you could. You could send him in, and as you know, right? I was he just still be. Way I off. was just reading today, 1974, Energy and Form, MIT Press. 
Uh, he does this study for the Owens Valley, the urbanization of the, mm-hmm. at the scale of the Owens Valley. Work it, on it. Yep. <laughs> it, it. It borrows clearly from you know systems theory. You know, it's it's adjacent to McCarg, but yep. different. Yep. But it avoids the totalizing of a Hilbersheimer, and it opens up a kind of uh, methodology in a way. It, it, it's interesting because at the time the triad would have been he and Christopher Alexander in, in Berkeley and me and McCarg. Ian McCarg at Penn. And he, in hindsight, was by far the most advanced in a kind of an abstract thinking. You'd agree? Yeah, absolutely. And they were much more grounded, one more socially, one more in, in landscape architecture, but still connecting. I think that's Ian really McCarg helpful. for sure. I think that's and right. And he just absolutely kind of made it. I mean, Ian McCarg, of course, you know, we uh, is within this Anglo, Scottish, Anglo American tradition of, of what I'll refer to as a geological determinism. You know, it's a kind of, if you understand the geology, and this underpins much of landscape architecture uh, in the United States, the sense of, if you understand the, the surficial hydrology and the geological underpinnings of those systems, you should be able to derive urban form. And there's a long tradition of that, as you know. What strikes me about Knowles's work is systems theory, but applied at a level of abstraction to thermodynamics and solar performance. Hmm. And I can't find a precise analog anywhere. No, there's not it's no. doing something Kevin Lynch could, could not do. It's not exactly Christopher Alexander. And it, it it's well ahead of its time, clearly. I mean, his, his ecological study for how to urbanize a, a, the scale of a, of a valley, I think, could not be more more prescient. Mm. No, and it's interesting how still how relevant it is and how he's still, he, he would still be uh, kind of an extreme edge character, wouldn't he? That's right. You've mentioned Elon Musk and uh, Tesla, for example. Uh, we've talked in other contexts about Steve Jobs and Apple. I wonder if does the architect operate at a disadvantage? I mean, so in both cases, Apple, Tesla, they're producing, you know, proprietary product, uh, kind of assemblages of things, you know, ecosystems of, of tools and techniques for a broad public that, we, you know, what was the, the Steve Jobs formulation for things we don't even know we want yet. Mm-hmm. And as an architect or hmm. as an urbanist, are, are you at a disadvantage working through necessarily institutions or public meetings or conversations about, well, what do people have an appetite for? Mm. Because one of the things I sense is that you would be quite happy to go away and work a little bit and then say, well, here's an innovation that we all agree we need. Mm. But that goes back to, I think, both the profession and the academy. It's an absolute priority that we become more strategical, that the problem isn't producing good designers. We have huge amount of talent. That's not the issue. The issue is its engagement with society, whether it in fact can solve a problem. The way I was educated, uh, not counting Ralph Knowles, but design schools, you just, you made something. It was, it was quite a beautiful and very simple. And you just developed these kind of beautiful things. That's 60s and 70s. It'd be absurd today to do that, right? You, you're going to have to think in much more complicated terms. But you are mentioning earlier, meaning you're going to join the world. It's how your Apple literally pick any object, right? That's absolutely part of a kind of a useful society. And it has to be thought about in those terms, right? And, you, and it's going to take you probably away from architecture. And it is going to kind of move you to the Jobs or the Musks of that, right? And, but there's nothing wrong with that. So it's, it's irrelevant. It's just, um, I think we have to get um, kind of caught up to the world. And at that level of complexity, and we have to be a little more demanding. It's and the a, weird thing is, though, it's going to happen anyway, because as they go to work, as they move from the academy to the work, all of a sudden now they're, they're right into the real world. And the, what I worry about is that they have a critical mass to now hang on to the value of the culture of architecture. 
when they're now confronted with the vast amount of contingency and the kind of the reality that they're facing, do they have a way of balancing the human values of the culture of, of design and the demands of society? Tom Main, thanks Good. very much. <laughs> Pleasure, always. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.